Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for the chance to praise you this morning, to lift up your name, which is worthy of all our praise. God, of all our attention, Lord, of all our lives. Lord, we pray that your word would speak clearly, be spoken clearly to us this morning. God, that you would pinpoint the areas of our lives in which we are not surrendered to you. Lord, in which we are not committed to your people, which is an expression of our commitment to you. Lord, please speak to us and transform us this morning. Bring life to those who are dead in their sins. God, show us your salvation in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Book of Philippians chapter 2. We are changing the order of our service a bit this morning, and I, and I hope you see this as intentional. Uh, after the preaching and the response to the word, we will have our offertory time, and then we will have our community time. And for those who are with us every Sunday, you know that is not the norm. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't notice anything like that. We, but we do, for those who do notice it, we want you to know this is intentional, that our time to share community time, to talk about uh, the mission reports that we'll be giving uh, today, and then also to bring offerings, all of this is a response to what God has done. It is responding to God, and so we will share in the Word, we will let our hearts soak in the Word and hopefully be transformed, convicted by the Word, and then we will intentionally respond to the word with action. And so that is why we're, we're forming the service, crafting, crafting the service this way today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 5. And I want to ask you if you'll stand with me as we read these verses together. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says to the church in Philippi, So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or self-conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question this morning. How are you doing living worthy of the gospel? If you were to examine your life, if this question was asked to you, um, I'm going to have trouble walking around this morning, so I'm going to try to stay in one place. I see. How does your life measure up to the gospel, to Christ's willingness to give himself on your behalf? If you're not a believer and this is unfamiliar to you, the gospel is your sin, God's perfection, and his willingness to send Christ to die for your sins. And then Christ's resurrection, which thereby gives you life. It confirms the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, how are you doing living up to that greatness, that great sacrifice? How would you rate yourself? But then let me give you even a more descriptive way of measuring that. If you were to base it on your relationship to a local group of God's people. 
on your commitment, the, the level of your commitment to God's people in a specific place. You see, this is what Paul is getting to. That a commitment to Christ naturally means a commitment to God's people. It means living at peace with a specific body of believers and that you are so committed to those people that you think about them more significantly than you think about yourself. This isn't professional level Christianity. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. This is living worthy of the gospel, that you're committed to a body of God's people. You see, the church is a covenant body, a covenant bride. We together represent Christ's bride. So friends, if we are divided, we don't represent Christ very well. If we are loosely committed to one another, we're not representing Christ well. So how would you rate yourself? How are you living? How are you doing living worthy of the gospel together? It's so difficult in the midst of our busy lives, in the midst of our family commitments. It's easy to put church as secondary or even further down the list. But friends, I would urge you that the scriptures would instruct us to say that this is now your family. Those who do the will of God are your brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers. This is at least as important, even more important than blood relatives. Friends, this is family. I hope you're prioritizing this body or whatever body it is that you might be a part of. So as we get into these, these scriptures this morning, I want to speak to the, the parents first, especially the fathers. I, I know that I don't qualify well in this regard. I didn't receive a Father's Day present this morning, and it wasn't by accident. But I think there are some incredible lessons here for parenting. You see, in parenting, you have the opportunity to shape the mind of a child. To shape the mind of a child to where they don't consider themselves first, but they consider others more significant than themselves. Parents, this comes through your discipline, the way that you discipline. It's not only telling them that something's wrong, but it's teaching them how to do what's right, how to think differently. It's not difficult for a child to think selfishly. That comes very naturally, right? So how do we train them to think of others more significant than themselves? This is how we shape their minds in the ways of Christ and to be like Christ. Fathers, we're so thankful for you, the role that you play. But they will see this most modeled in you. They will learn selfishness or selflessness from you, from the way that you lead. Whether you would like to think you lead or not, it doesn't matter. You lead, even if it's passively, you're leading. And so how are you modeling this for children, for grandchildren, for whoever it may be? You are to be training up the children in this selflessness, in this commitment to God's people. So I hope that you find practical application for this, and I hope that you are able to discuss this with your children. Let's get into these, into these passages, into our, our main points this morning. We'll have three main points. The first is going to be that you think together. Paul is going to ask them to fulfill his joy. What makes Paul happy? 
Well, if you read the letter to the Philippians, I would say there are two main things that make Paul happy. First, it's the proclamation of the gospel. He's in prison, yet he's happy because the gospel's moving forward. Secondly, it's a unified church. It's that God's people are growing together. This makes Paul happy. So Paul is going to ask them, fulfill my joy. He desires a unified people. He says, think together. Think together in the same way. Secondly, don't act with a divisive spirit. We'll get into some specific points there. And then lastly, live humbly. Live humbly. And this is the way of Christ. This is where we will conclude. The first verse. We're not taking a specific point from here, but let's just get to where, where Paul gets. This is how he gets there to think, to think together. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit that binds us together. He dwells within every one of us who have believed. And so this is how we have fellowship with one another. Friends, this is how we are united. The cross unites us. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us unites us. He says, if there is any affection and sympathy... These are all rhetorical questions, just so that we can get this passage clear. It's rhetorical questions. Paul is basically saying, since there is this encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from His love, since there is participation in the Spirit, a fellowship in which we have been joined together, and since there are affection and sympathy, because there are these things, complete my joy to a believer These things should be relatively obvious that there is comfort in Christ. Surely there are some times in our lives that are darker than others. But at some point, Christian, you can reflect back to a time in which the love of Christ was comforting to you. His sacrifice for your sins, His presence with you through the Spirit, it was comforting to you. Maybe you were in the hospital at some point and a believer came to visit you. You're going through a difficult time and a Christian came to just talk with you. This is the fellowship of the Spirit that binds us together to comfort one another. These things are obvious to those who have believed and who have joined God's body. If there are those of you who aren't familiar with these things this morning, here is an opportunity for you I promise that He is comforting. That there is fellowship in the Spirit. And so if you have not believed, hear this as an invitation to you this morning. Believe on Christ and you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be joined to God's people. And there is no greater comfort in all the world. There is eternal salvation awaiting you in heaven with God here in the new heavens and the new earth. So, hear this as an invitation. We'll give it again later and you can respond. But Paul is making an appeal, rhetorical questions. These things have happened. Christ is comforting. So this is what you do. Fulfill my joy. Think together. Let's look at this first one. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let me just say that that Paul is being a bit repetitive here. Even if you look at the original language, he's saying the same thing basically over and over. And it's just to enforce the point, the importance, think together. Think together. He's asking this one thing, have the same mind. Well, what are some natural questions that develop from this? First, what are we to think about? Paul, we're to think about the same thing. Well, what is it exactly you want us to think about? 
Well, let's look at the general context of Philippians. Paul is delighting in the gospel. He's delighting in Christ. What he wants us to think about together, friends, is none other than Christ, the gospel, the mission of the church. This is what we're to think about. And then how are we to be shaped together under the gospel? The shaping of the mind. This is so important for a people to dwell together in unity. We must be shaped together. Well, how are we shaped? How are our minds shaped? Is this just a passive thing? It just happens? Do we do it intentionally? Well, both. You see, patterns of thinking, as we all know, come from what we listen to, what we watch, and what we interact with. The people we're around. And so either we let our minds be shaped by culture, by what we're around, or we shape our minds intentionally. Either we intentionally shape our minds with Christ in the Word and with God's people, or we just let our minds be shaped in however they're shaped. I know a lot of you have heard the term, it's free thinking. Let people be a free thinker. Let them think what they want. There's really no such thing as free thinking. You think according to what you're around. You submit to whatever you're around. I'm sorry, I'm having some issues here. (laughs) Sorry. There's no such thing as free thinking. You are shaped by whatever you are around and immersed in all the time. And so the question really is, church member, friend, visitor, whoever you are, how is your thinking being shaped? Is it being shaped according to the world? Or is it being shaped according to God's view? according to the Scriptures, according to His design. Positive uh, positive thinking gurus have really latched on to this. The only problem is they sometimes teach you to think the wrong things. Listen to Norman Vincent Peale. He was a, a leader in this positive thinking movement. Listen to what Peale says. He says, we need to cultivate practical techniques of thinking for the power to think is one of our greatest faculties. Your life or mine is not determined by outward circumstances, but by the thoughts that habitually enter the mind. Listen to Peel. You create your own world by your thoughts. It has been said, a man is what he eats. A deeper truth is, a man is what he thinks. The wisest of all books says, as he thinketh in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks habitually in his conscious and conscious and subconscious mind, that is what he becomes. Friends, this, this is pretty true. <laughs> that as you think, that is what you will, that's where you'll end up. So Peel has some points here. The problem with where Peel goes is he's not going to teach you what to think about in the right way. He's going to teach you how to become confident in yourself, how to think positively about yourself. What the gospel tells us to do is to know who we are, that we are great sinners, and then to know who God is, that he is a great savior and that our confidence can be found solely in him. And so, we must be shaped together. Our minds must be shaped together. Now, this is why this time together is so important. We hear the Word together. Our minds are shaped according to the Word. And then, hopefully, when we go out of here, this isn't the only time we think about this this week. 
Our minds must be shaped together under the word. And this is what helps us to be united together. But we're not simply brain matter, are we? We're, we're made up of emotions as well. And so Paul is going to tell them, have the same mind, but also have the same love. Affections. You see, our affections are also, they influence our mind. We, we intentionally or passively nurture our affections by what we submit ourselves to again. You see, the love of the Scriptures is not what we talk about today when we get like bit by the love bug and we just can't help it. The love of the Scriptures is that you are intentional. It's an effort to love. And so Paul is asking them to have the same mind, have the same love, that you direct your attention, your heart, and everything in this way, your will in this way, that you will be together. For practical purposes, I want to just offer this advice, whatever it may be, however you would like to, if you would receive it. I think every minute of our lives can be put into one of three categories. And I don't want to be legalistic here. Even if our heart's not in this, then it doesn't matter. We are like the Pharisees who still don't please God. But one of three categories. Every minute of our time either adds to our love for God and His people. It detracts from our, from our love for God and His people. Or it's neutral. And it just depends on how we deal with it. And so I want to ask you. If your life is fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ, then all your time will go towards whether you're with family, whether you're with friends, whatever you're doing, you eat, drink, you do all to the glory of God. And so I want to ask you which category your, your time is in. Are you seeking to love God more and more, to love His people more and more? Are there things in your life that are detracting from your ability to unite with God's people? There could be. You're divided from God's people because you think in an entirely different way because during the week you submit yourself to things that present an entirely different worldview. So, where is your time going? So Paul asked them, think together, have the same mind. But here's the reality. We will disagree, right? This isn't a utopia. We're not going to find it here. No church. You won't find it at any church. We're all perfect people. And so we will never be imperfect people. So we will never be a perfect church. If you find one, you better leave because you're going to ruin it quickly. So we won't find the utopia here. What our desire is that at our disagreements about peripheral, matter, peripheral matters will lead us more deeply into Christ and the things we do agree on. The gospel And so let me appeal to you in this way. Whenever there's a disagreement among us, will you seek the good of this group of people rather than just your good? If you have something that you don't feel, you don't agree on with everyone, will you seek not just yourself and your reaction and the things you would like to say, but instead will you think about what's good for the unity of this body? We'll find how we sometimes divide the body in just a moment. But I want you to commit in this way that you won't seek your selfish desires, that you won't seek yourself, but you'll seek the group. 
Again, as we have said several times in this study, there's no Lone Ranger Christianity. It is about the body, not just about you. So think together. And when you have disagreements, seek the good of one another. Secondly, don't act with a divisive spirit, a prideful spirit. What Paul is going to ask the people to do, the positive thing, is to live humbly. He's going to ask them to live humbly. Well, the the opposite of that is pride. And so what we're encountering here, what we'll see is it's pride. Don't act with a divisive spirit. Don't act out of an attitude of discord. There are two words that Paul uses here to describe this. Rivalry, and then secondly, conceit. And when you really study these words, there's a lot that comes out here. First, the, the first word, the rivalry, it means to, to really blaze your own trail. There are certain personalities that are more prone to this than others, unfortunately. This happens when you entirely disregard maybe the leadership of the church because you don't like the way it's going. You have your preferences and so you're not going to walk along with them. Or possibly you just reject the direction. Friends, when you have hallway conversations and you voice your disagreement, this can be divisive for the body. You spread your poison. We, we don't need that. And so we don't need this this spirit of discord when you go behind closed doors so you feel free to vent. That divisive spirit is not helpful here. The, The second word is conceit. It means pursuit of yourself. Vain glory is the the translation that's sometimes used. And the reason it's called vain glory is because it stems from emptiness we're trying to fill. Right? Right? We, we don't feel, or maybe there's a certain way we think about ourselves, but we want to make sure that others see it too. And so we try to speak up so they, they know that we're as smart as we think we are. You might have an opinion on everything, but you have qualifications in few. You arrogantly share your thoughts, but you really have no qualifications on that. And and I don't mean to be mean here, but let me just ask you this. Would you rather a gastrointestinal doctor or the urologist do your neurological evaluation? Would that work well? Would you... There are those who arrogantly just share their views because they, they want people to hear them. It's not so much about people being transformed and the body growing as they want to make sure that they're heard. There's a a specific motive here that they can feel good about themselves. But please, unity can't exist where people are wanting to be heard. That's their main preference. They need to have their opinion known. Because even when that particular person might say something right, people can't hear them because they know they'll just see their head get bigger. This isn't helpful to the body. So, rivalry, conceit, vain glory. I I don't want to rant, and I know I might have done this before, and, and so let me just disclaim, Facebook, I think, can be a great gift. Social media can be a beautiful gift of the Lord. And so, please hear that first. 
But let me also say, it can be an altar for your self-glorification. Where else? I mean, can you imagine going to someone's house and them saying, hey, I have 500 pictures of myself. Would you like to see them? That can't happen anywhere else except Facebook. But it's not only pictures of oneself, it's also opinions. You can write what you're thinking, right? And then thousands of people can comment back. And some of the comments are just absurd. But you get to have your opinion heard, right? So it's important that we think about places in conversation, or it might be on the internet, wherever it may be, where that's, that vain glory comes out in us. I can think of conversations even in my own life where I did, I was in a certain group of people and I might have wanted them to know what I knew. This is, this is important. This is that we see this in ourselves when in this body because our sins can easily get in the way of one another and us, our ability to love one another rightly. But why do we resort to these attitudes? Again, let's, let's get to that and think beneath it all. Paul calls them to humility. So what seems to be at work is a level of pride that we need satisfied within ourselves. It's really a method of self-preservation. Even if it's subconscious, unintentional. Our reactions of anger, our tendency to speak out of turn, it really isn't about what, what we're saying as much about our voice being heard. If we don't speak up for ourselves, no one else will. That's how we feel. No one else is going to take care of me. See me in the way that I need to be seen to feel confident and good about myself. So, so what do we do? in response to this, to fill this void in our self-confidence? Do we try to think positive thoughts? Do we seek to serve others more? You know, even scholarly research in recent years has sought to show the benefit of serving others, of just serving, doing random acts of kindness, and how that benefits our, our mental state. Paul says something similar, but there's a different motivation behind it. Listen closely to where he goes from here. Count other, in humility, the second part of verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. You see, outside the Bible, humility was associated with slavery during this time. It was not a respectable quality. In fact, it conveyed the idea of being base, unfit, shabby, and of, of no account at all. And so humility was not a, a virtue for pagans, for unbelievers. Even in more recent times, listen to what C.S. Lewis has said about pride, humility's opposite. He said, it's the vice of which no man in the world is free, but everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And he says, there is hardly anyone except a Christian who imagines that they're guilty of it themselves. He will say later in the chapter, if a man will say he is not conceited, then indeed he is. So, 
Pride can seem so right because it feels like healthy self-esteem, right? It's self-confidence. And humility can sound so bad because we're forced to think badly about ourselves so that we can think more of others. But, friends, what does the Bible say about humility? Is that what we must do, think badly about ourselves? Let's look at a couple examples. First, a negative example, one of pride. Isaiah 2.11, you'll see this in your notes. Proud men will be brought low. Arrogant men will be humiliated. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Here's what the Lord does to the proud. They will be brought low. And then a perfect example of humility and pride in one place. David and Goliath. First, let's think about how David was chosen. The Lord tells Samuel the prophet, go to the family of Jesse. I have a man who is to be king. So Samuel goes to the family of Jesse. Jesse brings forth his sons, all except one. He looks at the sons. They're strong and mighty, very king-like. And Samuel looks at each one, and none of them qualify to be the king that God desires. And then Samuel's going to say, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, one more, but he's not even worth looking at. He says, let me see that son. He goes out to the fields where he'll meet David. Or David comes and he is to be the king. And God gives this word, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And then as you see David's role play out as he will become king, we have this encounter between David and Goliath. Goliath is the the mighty man, the huge man. He is intimidating all the armies of God's people. And David said, I will take out that man. You see the encounter of humility versus pride. But it's a humility in which he has confidence in the Lord. You see, he doesn't boast about his gifts except for the fact that he says, the Lord will use what he has prepared in me to conquer this man. You see, humility recognizes that all the gifts, all the abilities are of the Lord. It's not that to be humble, you have to deny what gifts you have. That's called false humility. And that's not what Paul is asking for. Right humility. You see, humility in the New Testament, when God asks His people to be humble, it means recognizing others more significant than yourself. It's not downing yourself. And, and so, we're to not be preoccupied with ourselves, making the constant attempts at self-preservation like we talked about. Listen to another quote from Lewis on this. When we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're acting on, being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as small, a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Friends, Humility is not thinking down about ourselves, but it's thinking of others more. We're to look closely. This is what the text says. Closely, the verse says, we're to inspect the needs of others, not only our own concerns. Unity among us has to be built through humility and self-sacrifice. 
We can't have unity when we're constantly trying to keep up our own pride and our own self-confidence. But where do we find the source for all this? How do we do this? Do we just try to think it through, get it? No, they find their source in Christ. This is what we will find. Let me give two applications for the humility and how we're to be humble. First, Christianity isn't an individualistic spirituality. It's not just about your quiet times. That's not how relationship with God is built. In fact, that builds spiritual pride. Because you keep your schedule well. You have your quiet times every morning. You are at church every Sunday. No, Christian spirituality is when we work together, we help one another grow in Christ and become like Him, conformed to Christ. So, Christian spirituality is not individual. Secondly, if we're considering others more significant than ourselves, when we're frustrated about something, we won't look to others to find how they need to change first. Part of recognizing being humble is recognizing that the sin might be in us rather than someone else. And so when you have friction in this body, when you have friction at home, wherever it may be, humility means you recognize the sin could very well be in me. And you don't look to someone else first for how they need to be fixed. This is what it means for partly what it means for us to be humble together. But lastly, this does not come from our ability to think it up. It comes from Christ. The last verse, verse 5, where we will pick up next week. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, since no one else perfectly exemplifies humility among us, we, only, we have only one place to look. And it's to Christ. You see, Christ could never be called arrogant because He is who He says He is. He's everything that He says He is. There's nothing false in Him. There's nothing imperfect in Him. There's no powerlessness in Him. He is perfection. He is all power. He never acts for vainglory. He never seeks Himself. He seeks the, the Father. And He even seeks our good. He's the one who emptied Himself. Yet in emptying Himself to the lowest depths, He will be exalted to the highest glory. He is all things. He is the model for how we are to be. He is how we are to empty ourselves for one another and yet find in Him an identity that we don't have to worry about losing. Because He will always take care of us. You don't have to continue to check your self-confidence because your identity is found in a hidden place in the heavens that He is always holding and you will never lose it. This is how we're able to pour ourselves out for one another and not constantly worry about ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. But here's an important factor here. Jesus is not only the example that we look at Him and we say, He did it, so I'm supposed to try to be like that, and i got to push and try to get like that. Jesus isn't the, only the example. He's the substitute. 
You see, it's not just that we aim there, but he says, I've done it so that I can I now give you the power to do it. In 5 through 11 that we'll discuss next week, we see the gospel played out. He was in the form of God that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Being found in the appearance of man, he would be willing to become a servant and he would die on the cross and then he would be exalted. Friends, this is pointing towards your salvation. The sacrifice on behalf of your sins. Here's the only way that you can really be humble. You recognize that your sin was satisfied in Christ. All that you are is in Christ. You are perfectly cleansed in Christ. You are free from every mark. And it is because of Him who died for you. And this is where you find humility. It was all given to you. It's nothing you earned of yourself. And so now, in Christ, you just pour yourself out so that His name will be known here and everywhere else. He's not only the example, friends. He's the substitute for your behalf. He's the power through which you do it. This is how you be humble. So, as we transition to a time of response, I want to ask you, if you are a member of this body, how can you live out that covenant here in a way that glorifies God even more? I'm not asking you to pile more on your schedule. I'm just asking you, how, how can you live out that humility here in a way that glorifies God and honors His people? Loves His people. How can you live out that commitment here? And then for those of you who are visiting, those of you who uh, we would love for you to be a part of this covenant body. And so we'd love to talk with you about that. For those of you who don't know Christ, we want you to know that there is comfort in Christ. There is encouragement in Christ. And there is a fellowship with His Spirit. And you will never again be alone. You'll never again be alone. Will you stand and we'll pray together?